Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Welcome, welcome back, addicts. This week, we are finishing up our discussion on the lipstick killer. We have so much juicy details to give into. I cannot wait to just dive right in. I'm so excited. We are going to be sipping a classic iced Milky Way mocha this week, and we are going to just be enjoying the intensity of the case while sipping on a simple coffee. This week, we are going to be shouting out Michelle A., Kevin B., and Patty S. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated, so we want to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for the support you guys have been giving us with our podcast, and we love you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, or IG, or on the World Wide Web at crimeaddictspodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you will find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Okay, addicts, so in part one, we introduced little Suzanne Degnan, who was kidnapped from her own bedroom in Edgewater, Illinois, in January 1946. We talked about the investigation process and the role the media played in this case. We discussed possible suspects the police focus on until they landed on William Hirons, and that was in June of 1946. The investigative tactics were shoddy, as we talked about, even for the 1940s. And Hirons was convicted of Suzanne's kidnapping and murder and sentenced to three life terms with an additional one year to life for burglary and assault charges in September of 1946. So this all happened in January. Um, they found him and convicted him in by September of that same year. This was all based off of the guilty plea agreement that he was bullied into accepting, as we talked about. And this, again, was all because the media played such a huge role in this case. So today we are going to start off the episode with talking about the aftermath of the conviction and moving our way into some pretty juicy content. So Casey, please do us the honors of starting off and feel free to just jump right in because we have a lot to get through today. Yes, I cannot wait. Okay, great. Soon after Hirons was arrested, his parents and younger brother changed their surname to Hill. His parents divorced after his conviction. Since his incarceration, he has learned several trades, including television and radio repair. At one point, he had his own repair shop. He became the first prisoner in Illinois history to earn a four-year college degree on February 6, 1972, receiving a Bachelor of Arts degree. He has aided other prisoners' educational progress by helping them earn their general education development, or GED, degrees, and becoming a, quote, jailhouse lawyer of sorts, helping them with their appeals. He sought pardon and parole, but neither was granted, despite numerous attempts, nearly 30, actually. By all accounts, he was a model prisoner and created a number of innovative programs for fellow inmates. 
1975, he was transferred to the Minimum Security Vienna Correctional Center in Vienna, Illinois, and then in 1998, upon his request to the Dixon Correctional Center Minimum Security Prison in Dixon, Illinois, where he resided in the hospital ward. He suffered from diabetes, which had swollen his legs and limited his eyesight, and he was confined to a wheelchair. This didn't stop him from his efforts to win clemency. In 2002, Lawrence C. Marshall filed a petition on Hiram's behalf seeking clemency. The appeal was eventually denied. Former Los Angeles police officer Steve Hoddle, who had spent 25 years on the force, met Hirons in 2003 when he was investigating the murders. He was convinced that Hirons was innocent of the crimes. Quote, I felt compelled to write an appeal to the Illinois Prisoner Review Board stating my professional beliefs that Hirons is innocent. End quote. Hirons' most recent parole hearing was held on July 26, 2007. The Illinois Prisoner Review Board decision in a 14-0 vote against parole was reflected by board member Thomas Johnson, who stated that, quote, God will forgive you, but the state won't, end quote. However, the parole board also decided to revisit the issue once per year from then on. Hirons died on March 5, 2012, at the age of 83 due to his declining health. For several months prior to his death, he also suffered from dementia. For decades, Betty Finn and Jim Degnan had to relive the gruesome details of their sister's murder. Every year, for 29 years, they attended parole hearings for Hirons to argue that he should remain behind bars for life. That's insane. 29 years. They had to go through that every year. That's insane. Insane. Oh, my gosh. Betty said she hopes Hirons' death brought closure to both him and those who have been haunted by his crimes. Quote, hopefully he is at peace and we don't have to worry about it anymore. I hope he made amends. I never wished him ill. I just want him in prison for everybody's safety. It was never out of retribution. It was out of fear that he couldn't hurt anybody else. And if we did not go to all these parole hearings and protest it, and he got out and hurt another child, you just couldn't live with it. End quote. Jim said his parents spoke of Suzanne, but never discussed her death or mentioned Hirons. He said he did not learn of the circumstances of her death until a classmate told him about the murder when he was in fifth or sixth grade, prompting him to ask his parents about it. There were other signs that Suzanne's parents never recovered from her death, such as when Mrs. Dagnan installed bars on Jim's bedroom window when they moved into a fourth floor apartment several years after the killing, and she did not allow him to buy black pants as a child because she associated them with Hirons. Jim called Hirons' death a, quote, moment of relief, and said he believed his parents would be relieved as well. He said, quote, it never left her or my father either. Their odyssey is over too, end quote. Degnan said he researched the case while he was in his 20s after Hirons began claiming he was innocent. After examining some of the evidence and speaking with the authorities and retired judge, he said he was satisfied that Hirons was guilty. He said Hirons supporters had decades to prove his innocence but never could. Quote, I always waited for the other shoe to drop and it never did. End quote. Dolores Kennedy 
Intern Coordinator at the Center of Wrongful Convictions in Northwestern University, who wrote a book about Hirons, became a close friend and was his power of attorney to make his medical decisions, said, quote, there was no deathbed confession. He always said he was innocent. I've known Bill 27 years. There was never an instant where he indicated he had any guilt in those murders, end quote. At a parole hearing in 1991, then-assistant state's attorney Thomas Epoch scoffed at Hiron's claims of innocence. Attorney Epoch detailed the evidence he said pointed to Hiron's guilt and said that Hiron's had also pleaded guilty to assault to kill a police officer, robbery, and 25 burglaries, adding a term of one year to life in the penitentiary. He said, quote, this is a man who cut a helpless little girl into six pieces and decapitated her, who murdered two women in their homes and remained with their bodies bathing them. Before Stephen King ever thought of any of these acts, William Hirons was doing them, end quote. Some observers have long questioned whether Hirons was actually guilty of the crimes he confessed to committing. Within days of his confession in open court, Hirons denied any responsibility. Mary Jane Blanchard, daughter of murder victim Josephine Ross, was one of the first dissenters, being quoted in 1946 as saying, quote, I cannot believe the young Hirons murdered my mother. He just does not fit into the picture of my mother's death. I have looked at all the things Hirons stole, and there was nothing of my mother's things among them, end quote. Many examples of the collected evidence held against Hirons as evidence of his responsibility for his crimes have come into question as to their accuracy and validity. All physical evidence is also now too old or has been lost over the years. Therefore, it cannot be reexamined at a scientific level. Okay, so let's break down some of the inconsistencies and the reason for his claim of innocence. Then we can decide for ourselves what we think. So first, let's talk about the witness. The desk clerk who reported after the murder of Josephine Ross seeing a man leaving the building who appeared nervous could not identify Hirons as the man he had seen. In addition, the desk clerk of the hotel where Frances Brown lived, who saw a man leaving the building shortly after her murder, viewed Hirons at the Bridewell Hospital and said positively that he was not the man he saw. There were no witnesses to the commission of any of these crimes. For starters, the sodium pentothal interrogation, which was done without a warrant and administered without either Hirons or his parents' consent, is believed to be of dubious value by scientists today. Indeed, by the 1950s, so-called truth serum had been largely discredited. When Hirons was arrested in 1946, growing scientific opinion against, quote, truth serum had not yet filtered down to the courts and police departments. Since the 1950s, the medical consensus has been that truth serums, including sodium pentothal, have no scientific validity regarding eliciting the truth from those subjects to interrogation. Modern medical practitioners have pointed to the high suggestibility of people under the influence of sodium pentothal and other so-called truth serums to support this claim. By the 1950s, most scientists had declared the very notion of truth serums invalid, and most courts had ruled testimony gained through their use inadmissible. 
during Hiron's post-conviction petition in 1952, State's Attorney Tui admitted under oath that he not only knew about the sodium pentothal procedure, he had authorized it and paid Dr. Grinker $1,000 U.S. dollars. The same year, Dr. Grinker revealed that Hirons never implicated himself in any of the killings. In 1946, after Hirons underwent two polygraph examinations, State's Attorney Tui declared the results inconclusive. However, John E. Reed and Fred E. Inbau published the test findings in their 1953 textbook, Lie Detection and Criminal Interrogation. These results seem to contradict Tui's declaration of inconclusiveness. According to the book, the test was not inconclusive. Quote, murderer William Hirons was questioned about the killing and dismemberment of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan. On the basis of the conventional testing theory, his response on the card test clearly establishes him as an innocent person. End quote. Again, we did talk about the fact that a polygraph is not something to necessarily lean on for a conviction, but it can be used as an investigative tactic. It's also inadmissible at court, even during this time in the 1940s and 50s. So I completely understand where we can't solely rely on that information alone to make a determination based on his innocence. But I think what is important to note here is that this is an inconsistency based on what was reported to the public, right? So they advised everybody, oh, the results were inconclusive, but that's not actually factual. What ended up coming out later was no, he was determined to have been telling the truth about not committing the crime. So I think that's just like an important thing to note. Yeah, that's a good thing to remember. So during the Dignan murder investigation, the Chicago Police Department contacted Chicago Daily News artist Frank San Hamill to examine a photograph of the ransom note. Three days after the murder, Hamill told police and the public that he had found a, quote, hidden indentation writing. Basically, it was writing impressions from a note written on an overlying piece of paper, leaving a ghostly impression. So at this news, Chief of Detectives Storms broke the chain of custody and provided Hamill with the original note from him to examine directly. Since the chain of custody was broken by this action, the note was rendered as useless in court, no matter the result. After Hirons was arrested for the Dagnan killing, Hamill reported that it implicated him. The FBI had previously issued a report on March 22, 1946, that it examined the note and declared that there was no indication writing at all and Hamill's assertions indicated either a lack of knowledge on his part or a deliberate attempt to deceive. Even the actual handwriting on the note has been apparently discredited. Most handwriting experts, both attached to the Chicago police and independent at the time of the original investigation, believe that Hirons had no connections to either the note or the wall scribble. Charles Wilson, who was the head of the Chicago Crime Detention Laboratory, declared Hiron's known handwriting examples obtained from Hiron's handwritten notes from college agreed with the police department experts who could not find any connection between Hiron's, the note, and the wall message. 
independent handwriting expert George W. Schwartz was brought in to give his opinion. He said flatly that, quote, the individual characteristics in the two writings do not compare in any respect, end quote. A third handwriting expert, Herbert J. Walter, whose credentials included working on the Lindbergh baby kidnapping in 1932, was brought in. After examining documents written by Hirons, Walter declared that Hirons wrote the ransom note and the lipstick scrawl on the wall and attempted to disguise his handwriting. However, this was in direct contradiction from what he said several months before, at which time he said he doubted that the two writings were authored by the same person. He was quoted as saying there were, quote, a few superficial similarities and a great many dissimilarities, end quote. In 1996, FBI handwriting analyst David Grimes declared that Hiron's known handwriting did not match either a Degnan ransom note or the infamous lipstick message. Supporting the two earlier results of the 1946 investigation and Herbert J. Walter's original January 1946 opinion, in addition, the handwriting of the notes did not match each other. Okay, as we're talking about this podcast and before we move on to the next inconsistency with this case uh casey and i are currently looking at pictures of both the ransom note and the lipstick message so i am going to try my best to describe this but i encourage you guys to go and take a look at these pictures for yourself We'll post these pictures. Just remember that this is back in the 1940s and 50s. So their photography quality is not what we have today. So they're not great pictures. But, and Casey, chime in here if you disagree with me. But when I look at these immediately, and I mean, <laughs> I am no handwriting expert. But there is not a single similarity for me. <laughs> Like, not at all. In one of them, they use a lot of capital letters throughout that aren't necessarily accurate. So when they say, do not notify FBI, it says lowercase d-o, and then a capital N, and then a lowercase o, and then a capital T. And then for notify is capital N, lowercase o, capital T, and then lowercase i-f-y. And then for FBI, those are, of course, all caps. And then after that, it says or police, right? So the O in or is lowercase and the R is uppercase. And for the word police, P is capitalized and the rest of the word is lowercase. I'm not going to go through the whole note. But as you can see in what I've depicted here, those capital letters don't necessarily belong. When I look at the lipstick message, it doesn't appear to me that there's maybe one capital letter that's not supposed to be there, Like, but it doesn't appear that they're using that style of writing for those two. And in the ransom note, all of the R's are capitalized, and it looks like somebody drew a line, like for the left-hand side, and then the circle as if they were almost going to write a P and then picked up their pencil again and drew the bottom part of the R almost in like a curved fashion. And on the lipstick message, all of the R's are lowercased and they're looped. So it's like somebody drew 
like that line going down and didn't pick up their, well, I guess in this case, lipstick, but didn't pick up the pen or pencil and looped it around back to the top for the R. It almost looks like a V or like a fancy looking Y or something. Um, and the last thing that I'll describe is that the lipstick message definitely is a lot more curvy and like almost has like curlies. Like if, if you look at both C's on catch, it's like they swirl around the top of the C and then continue to the bottom like normal. And the wording on the ransom note is very patchy. So for every single part of a letter, it looks like they picked up the pen and put it back down to create and write that next part, if that makes any sense at all. So it's very different in style. And from somebody who's not a handwriting expert at all, I can tell immediately just by looking at it that there is zero similarities from just my inexperienced eye, if that makes sense. I don't know. Do you think that there's any similarities or does it look like it's possible that they were written by the same person to you? I don't think they're written by the same person at all for a lot of reasons, like you just said. Um, but also uh, one of the main things is that I've noticed is the whys. So mm -hmm. in the ransom note, the why is like they did a short line and then the long diagonal line. And with the lipstick message, it was more of like a curve and then a straight line for the, the long part of the Y. And so those are two completely different things that I feel like that's hard to, unless you're really focusing on that. The other thing that I like noticed pretty quickly that I think is really hard, again, unless you're really, really focusing on it, is the B's the capital B's on both messages are completely different. And I feel like that's a hard thing to do unless you're really focusing on it. Cause when you write your B's, you just have like this muscle memory to do. And so the lipstick message, the B, the top loop of the B is a lot smaller and like fatter. And then on the ransom note, it's a lot longer and skinnier. Yeah, I can definitely see what you're talking about. I don't know if we're doing a very good job depicting this. So we definitely recommend to jump to our social media and look at this while we're describing it. And maybe you can see what we're talking about. One thing I want to mention is that if you do look at these and you look at the lipstick message, make sure you're not mistaking his K's for R's. It's almost like he's doing like a lowercase K with like the line on the left-hand side. And then instead of just a shorter top diagonal line and, and then a bottom right diagonal line, he actually curves it. You know how they teach you to do like cursive in elementary school. That's how he does it. He does the rounded part of the K. However, that left side line is not very long. So the lowercase K's do look like capital R's. I mean, you, that, there's no other way to describe it. They look like capital R's. So, you know, if you're looking at it and you're like, well, that's an R, it's, it's not. So we've definitely pointed out that there are many, many inconsistencies between the notes, even looking like they were written by the same person. I don't have a sample of Hiren's handwriting to compare to these. 
But I think that even just looking at these, coming to the determination that it's written by the same person is hard for me to believe. Like, I would need an expert to tell me definitively, without a doubt, 100%, they were written by the same person. Because to me, just, you know, again, not a trained eye or nothing like that, but they do look completely different. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I really, again, am not an expert, but I don't see it. They're not even really close. Yeah. We and we can move on. I'll I'll leave it at that. But I just think it's interesting and, and thought it was a good idea to try to describe it, you know, for those of our listeners that are not looking at the notes. We will post them on all of our social media. But just so that it's clear in looking at it, from our point of view, they do not match at all. So moving on, the most damning evidence that has been demonstrated towards Hiren's guilt has been the fingerprint evidence on the Degnan ransom note and on the door jam of Francis Brown's bathroom door. However, suspicions on the veracity of door jam fingerprints found on the Brown crime scene has come into question, including charges that the police planted the fingerprint since it allegedly looks like a rolled fingerprint. And I'm talking about the type that you would find on like a police fingerprint index card where they take your thumb, roll it. It looks just like that. Okay, so because we have a couple of different fingerprints, I'm going to break this down so we can just talk about the ransom note and then the door jam. So for the ransom note, as I said, the validity of the prints has fallen under suspicion by some due to the timing of discoveries of fingerprints on the card, the broken chain of evidence, and its handling by both inexperienced law enforcement and civilians. The Degnan ransom note was first examined by the Chicago Crime Detection Laboratory, but they couldn't find any usable prints on the note. Captain Timothy O'Connor took the note to the FBI Crime Laboratory in Washington, D.C. on January 18, 1946, with the idea of enlisting the FBI's more sophisticated technology in finding any latent prints. The FBI subjected the note to the then-advanced method of lodine fuming to raise latent prints. The process was similar to execution in today's polycyanoacrylate, or superglue, fuming in which cyanoacrylate is heated to a vapor. This vapor sticks to the skin oils on the friction ridges of the latent fingerprint. The older ninhydrin method, which is a liquid that is sprayed on paper to detect latent prints on paper, is similar. The FBI were able to raise two prints, which they photographed promptly because unlike modern polycyanoacrylate, fuming prints revealed by the lodine process fade quickly. Captain O'Connor later testified at Hiram's sentencing hearing that he only saw two prints on the front of the note and did not mention the existence of any on the back. Upon his return to Chicago, he turned over the photographs of the revealed prints on the note to Sergeant Thomas Laffey, the Chicago Police Department's fingerprint expert. After his examination, he stated to the press that they were, quote, so incomplete that it is impossible to classify them, end quote. Despite checking these incomplete prints with everyone arrested between January 1946 and June 29, 1946, he was unable to find a match even though William Hirons was previously arrested and fingerprinted on May 1, 1946 on a weapons charge. Hirons was arrested for burglary on June 26, 1946. 
Three days later, Sergeant Laffey announced a nine-point comparison match to Hiran's left little finger with one of the prints. Then a match was announced between Hiran's and the second print. On or about June 26, 1946, too much fanfare, State's Attorney Tui announced that, quote, there can be no doubt now, end quote, as to the Hiran's guilt after the authorities linked Hiran's prints to the two prints on the ransom note. However, in the same news conference, State's Attorney Tui also stated that they didn't actually have enough evidence to indict Hirons. It was this assertion of his guilt from the press conference, unchallenged by Hirons' defense counsel at sentencing, that helped prompt Hirons to confess to the murders he was charged with. Months after the FBI had returned the note and the photograph of the note to the Chicago police, the police announced that Sergeant Laffey had discovered a palm print on the reverse side of the note, also matching Hirons to 10 points of comparison. No other prints were found on the note, prompting Police Chief Walter Storm to say, quote, This shows that Hirons was the only person to handle the note. This declaration is suspicious to some because, one, the Chicago police couldn't find any prints originally, hence the necessity to send the ransom note to the FBI for further processing, indicating that they were incapable of finding it in the first place. Two, Captain O'Connor only mentioned the two prints on the front side of the note and none on the reverse. Further, since both sides of the note are photographed immediately after fuming by the FBI, a third print on the reverse side would have been obvious on the note itself at the time of the development of the photograph of the note. Yet, despite the testing occurring in mid-January, this third print wasn't discovered until early July, six months later, and approximately two weeks after Hirons was arrested, despite Sergeant Laffey working on the Degnan case almost exclusively for six months. Three, considering the chain of custody was breached when the original note was previously given to Chicago Daily News reporter Frank St. Hamill. So basically, any number of people, including Hamill, may have compromised the integrity of the prints on the note by depositing additional prints and obscuring and corrupting the prints of the culprit. Number four. Indeed, even before the police's own crime lab got a chance to examine the note, Charles Wilson, the chief of the Chicago Crime Detection Laboratory, stated, quote, When we got the Degnan note, it came late after other people had photographed it and handled it. End quote. In the same vein, a March 22, 1946 FBI report noted, quote, It is evident that the note has been handled considerably. End quote. These statements are in direct contradiction of Chief Storm's assertion that no one else but Hirons handled the note. Number five, Sergeant Laffey testified during the September 5th, 1946 sentencing hearing that one more fingerprint on the reverse side of the note was linked to Hirons to 10 points of comparison. He also increased the points of comparison to the palm print of Hirons from 10 to the FBI standard of 12. As to the fingerprints on the front of the note that were discovered by the FBI in January 1946, Sergeant Laffey only identified one, but did not say it belonged to Hirons when he testified at the sentencing hearing. Only the prints not found by the FBI and allegedly discovered after Hirons' arrest were mentioned at the sentencing hearing, and not the two front prints that was supposedly indisputable proof of Hirons' culpability. And finally, six, the prints were hardly mentioned nor linked to Hirons in a court hearing in which the witnesses had to testify under oath. This is just a further indication 
of what could have been called ineffective defense by Hiron's lawyers, because none of these issues were raised at the sentencing hearing and no objections were made, nor did they bring up the chain of custody issues. That doesn't sound like good representation to me. This whole thing sounds real sketchy. (laughs) Yeah, it is really sketchy. And I mean, I still have to get into the door jam, but I just can't understand how there was no representations on this at all. I mean, that's like lawyer 101, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really, really, really bad. (laughs) It's really bad. They did a bad job. Like, even if your client is guilty, you're still supposed to represent them. And they didn't even do that. So it's like, it's really bad. Yeah, I agree. It's, I don't even know what else to say. Terrible. Okay, so let's get into the door jam. A bloody smudged print of an end and middle joint of a finger was found on the door jam of a door between the bathroom and dressing room in Francis Brown's apartment. A photograph of the print was taken, but no match was made with anything on file. After Hirons was arrested on June 26th, his prints were compared to the Degnan note. When Sergeant Laffey claimed a match with Hirons and the print on the Degnan note was made, an attempt was also made to match him with the door jam print. It was unsuccessful and the police cleared him of Francis's murder because the print at the crime scene was not his. Twelve days later, however, it was declared to match Hirons prints to 22 points of comparison, well above the FBI standard. At Hirons' sentencing, Sergeant Laffey testified that the end joint of the bloody print had only an eight-point comparison to Hirons and the middle joint a mere six-point comparison. Ironically, the middle joint didn't live up to even Sergeant Laffey's personal standard of seven or eight points to make a positive identification match. Another source of contention is that the brown crime scene fingerprint has the appearance of being rolled, like I explained, that they do when you're arrested on an index card with ink. And the last thing I'll mention is that Hiron's attorney, again, did not question the validity of the prints. In neither crime scene, neither case, at no time at all did the attorney speak up and try to hold the police accountable for their collection tactics, their chain of custody, their the validity of them matching. Nothing. They didn't say, they didn't even question them on it. What's that called? Uh, Ineffective counsel. A hundred percent. I object to this counsel. We're just going to keep doing that. I object. I object to the stupidity. Oh, okay, I'll stop. God. I'll stop bitching about the fingerprints. Do you want to take this into the inconsistencies with the confessions? Yeah. Okay. So check this out. So the confession itself is suspect due to the inaccuracies of key details, including times and location. This is no surprise since he basically transcribed his official confession from the falsified Chicago Tribune report of his alleged earlier confession, which provided fabricated details of the crime. 29 inconsistencies are known between his confession and the known facts of the crime. It has since become the understanding that the nature of these inconsistencies is a clear indicator of false confessions. Some details did seem to match, like the police theory that Suzanne was dismembered by a hunting knife and Hiram's confession to throwing a knife onto the section of the Chicago subway L train near the Degnan residence. However, it was never determined scientifically 
that it was at least the dismemberment tool and Hirons had an alternate explanation for it. Further, it was not initially recovered by the police, but members of the press who recovered it from the transit track gang who found it. So again, sketchy. <laughs> Objection. Lack of foundation. <laughs> They've, yeah. Boy. Okay, so we have talked about um, a lot of inconsistencies with this case, which makes me, knowing what we know today, just kind of scratch my head like, are you serious? But I want to talk about a potentially alternative suspect. So to offer up a possible alternative suspect, we are going to go back to a false confession we previously discussed. As you may recall, after Suzanne's murder, but before Hirons became a suspect, Chicago police interrogated 42-year-old Richard Russell Thomas, a drifter passing through the city of Chicago at the time of Suzanne's murder and was in the Maricopa County Jail in Maricopa, Arizona. Police handwriting expert Charles B. Arnold, head of the forgery detail of the Phoenix Police in Thomas's hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, noted similarities between the handwritten Degnan ransom note and Thomas's handwriting when Thomas wrote with his left hand and suggested that Chicago police investigate Thomas. So this is another thing I think that goes towards us pointing out the fact that these look completely different. They said that his handwriting was only similar to one of the two, which to me makes sense because if they were written by different people, then maybe he was guilty of one of those crimes, but not both. So it's possible that these crimes are not even completed by the same person. So upon being questioned, Thomas confessed to the crime, but he was released from custody after Hirons became the prime suspect. Others contend that Thomas was a strong suspect, but the Chicago detectives dismissed Thomas's claims after Hirons became a suspect. Thomas died in 1974 in the Arizona prison system. His prison record and most of the evidence of his interrogation regarding the Chicago murders have been lost and or destroyed miraculously. Isn't that convenient? Instead of an article this week, I'm just going to give you some reading we recommend if you want to dive further into this case on your own and also break down the facts we have covered in detail regarding Hiron's possible innocence in list forms so we can move into our discussion with the simple facts in mind. So first, three books have been written solely about Suzanne Dagnan case or more specifically about William Hirons. One by Lucy Freeman, Before I Kill Again, what was published in 1955, accepts that Hirons was the murderer and argues that he was mentally ill. Another by Dolores Kennedy titled William Hirons, His Day in Court, published in 1991, questions whether he was guilty and concludes that he was not. A third book by Lori E. Calillo, titled Confess or Die, The Case of William Hirons, published in 1999, follows a line of reasoning similar to Kennedy's. In addition, there was a major article in the Chicago Reader magazine published 824-1989 by Robert McClory, which is available online, that also questioned his guilt and an ABC primetime TV program hosted by Sam Donaldson that aired on August 7th, 1996, that likewise expressed doubt. An article by Adam Hagenbottom in May 2008 issue of Gentleman's Quarterly, also available online, followed a similar line of questioning his guilt. 
Okay, so here's a list of facts that are important to remember regarding Hiram's possible innocence and some discrepancies in his case. One, the handwriting in the ransom note was not the writing of Hiram's. Two, the lipstick message on the wall was not Hiram's writing. Three, the lipstick message and ransom note were written by different people. Four, the FBI report stated that there was no hidden indentation writing on the note. Five, the, quote, bloody fingerprint from the Brown apartment was a rolled fingerprint, apparently lifted from a fingerprint card and not the latent print the prosecutors had described. Six, the fingerprint on the, quote, face of the Dagnan note was really on the back of the note, making this evidence fraudulent. Seven, the results of the lie detector test showed Hirons to be an innocent man. Eight, handwriting experts identified Thomas as the author of the ransom note. Nine, Thomas lived in Chicago where Suzanne was killed and hung out at the car agency near her home. Ten, Suzanne's arms were discovered in a sewer directly across from that same car agency. Eleven, Thomas was a male nurse who molested two of his three children. Twelve, several years prior to the Dagnan crime, he had been arrested for attempted kidnapping and extortion. Portions of the extortion letter have wording similar to that on the ransom note. And 13, Thomas was a petty burglar who was arrested on numerous occasions. Okay, I'm glad that we put those into bullet point form because I know we went over a lot of details, but it's nice to just break it down. Something I want to note really quickly before getting into our discussion questions, which I'm really excited about today, is that the abduction, murder, and dismemberment of Suzanne Degnan was and is Edgewater's most famous crime. It was a national, even international story. Nothing before it or since comes even close. And I'm just going to throw in there. Hopefully it stays that way. But it's crazy to think that this one case of this little girl is their most famous crime in this community. It's really interesting because there has been obviously quite a bit of time in history since then until now. And nothing even comes close to this. So hopefully it stays that way. But because of that and how famous it was. Obviously, we talked about that Hirons had died while still in custody because he was not granted clemency or parole. So that made Hirons the longest serving inmate in Illinois history. That's insane. Especially for so many inconsistencies. Yes. And such like horrible practices on both police prosecution and attorney sides i feel like everyone did a horrible job and then this man had to then sit in prison for so long yeah i couldn't agree with you more and we're going to get into that a little bit more in our discussion questions today but i want to start with breaking these discussion questions down because i have literally so many of them (laughs) that i want to break it down by topic okay so on the ransom note I have a whole list of questions on this because I feel like there's such a lack of information. I mean, they were so focused on the handwriting itself and the fingerprints that I don't feel like they looked into how it got there or anything on the back end of that. So we're dismissing a lot of information. So like, was it real or was it a cruel hoax? Like we know those boys were taking advantage of the situation by prank calling And they had said it was like crumpled up and you can see it in the picture. It's like crumpled up. So they actually thought it was garbage initially. And then somebody stumbled over it, found it, 
oh, look, we have a ransom note. So was that just like some cruel hoax? Somebody threw it in the window? I mean, like, how did it even get there? When was it even written? Was that before the perpetrator entered while they were still in the house or after the kidnapping? And if it was after the kidnapping, then the perpetrator would have had to return the same morning to put it in the room where it was later found. And why was it oily and crudely lettered on a small piece of paper? Like, if they planned this in advance, why was this not a full-size piece of paper? And if it wasn't planned in advance and they did it there, don't you think that they would recognize that? You know, like, if it was on a receipt that they had at the house or something, they would be able to determine that it was theirs. So where did this paper even come from? Like, I feel like I want to know so many more things about the ransom note than were actually investigated. Yeah, I feel like this whole ransom note was just a cruel hoax, to be honest. Like, I don't... I think that it was probably the kids that overheard the situation happening and they're like, hey, maybe we could. It's so funny. Maybe it'd be funny. We'll we'll try to get some money out of it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's why it was so poorly planned, because it was kids and they were just trying to take advantage of a situation that they didn't know much about. So the only problem I have with it being a hoax is that they would have had to get there that morning when everybody was scouring for those girls. Like they would have had to do that undetected. And that window would have had to be still open. And this was in super chilly weather. So it's not like they would have had the window open because it was summer and hot. You know what I mean? So that's the problem that I have with the hoax of as far as it coming from somebody else. However, I do agree and could see how it could be a hoax from the perpetrator just trying to stall time. You know what I mean? Have the police and family members be wasting their time worrying about coming up with the money and waiting for a call and that kind of stuff to give them time to potentially get, you know, as far as possible or away from the crime scene to be undetected. So I could see how it's like a hoax placed by the perpetrator, but I don't see how it could be from somebody completely unrelated as like a joke. But I still don't understand the whole like when and how was it written and what was this paper? Where was it from? Like, I just don't because to me, it sounds like so think of it like, okay, you're on the road and you call you make a call and Somebody's like, oh, do you want your confirmation number? And you're like, oh, crap. Like, yeah, sure. And so you're like scouring your car. If you're like me, you're like looking for an old receipt or a piece of mail or something that you can write on. Right. So is that what this was? Was it just like a corner of a piece of paper that they took tore off? And if that's the case, then this wasn't premeditated. Or if it was, they were terrible at it. They're like, oh, I'm going to go write a ransom note. And then they get to the crime scene and then they're like, oh, I forgot the paper. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me how this came about. So I'll tell you my thought is that it was placed there by the perpetrator who had obviously used gloves to enter the premises considering there was no fingerprints on the windowsill or nothing, right? So that means that they used their gloves to write the ransom note and it was just a stalling tactic so they crumpled it up through it and that was that and it was something that was like a last minute not planned just like on a whim idea that they had and they ran with it that's the only thing that I can come to terms with because I just don't understand and I feel like 
he had to have probably obtained that paper from, like I said, either somewhere in the vehicle that they were driving or in the bedroom of the little girl. But I feel like if it was in Suzanne's bedroom, then they would have eventually found a piece of paper, you know, that wasn't complete, that they were able to be like, oh, this is the other half of that note. You know what I mean? So that's my thought on it. But it's so hard to say. I mean, I could easily be persuaded either in any direction really on this. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, that definitely could. That's not out of the scope of possibilities for sure. Yeah, they all are. That's kind of why we're talking about them. and Why I broke them down into category because there are so many questions. It's ridiculous. Okay, so let's move into the stolen ladder. It was found next to the garage of the Degnan building. And from the way that it's described in all of the research that I did, it was like on its side. So laying long ways on the floor and leaned up against a garage that's near their apartment building. That's or like, I don't know if it's a garage, but like a shop or something. Uh, That's the way that it's described And like the picture that I have envisioned in my head of this ladder. So with that being said, again, not something that I feel was investigated enough because they were so stuck on trying to determine that the prints were his and trying to get a confession out of him and all of these things that I don't feel like enough research and investigation was put into these topics that we're talking about now. So with the ladder... Okay, I guess my main question on the ladder is, was it used to enter her bedroom window? If you take it and prop it up against the side of the building, it did go directly to the height of right underneath her window. So somebody could have easily propped it up, entered the bedroom, and exited, and then moved the ladder and laid it back down by the side of that garage building. But it wasn't propped up to the window when it was discovered by police. So I guess the question is, was it used to enter the bedroom or not? And if the ladder was used, did the murderer carry Suzanne down the ladder afterwards? Or did they exit the building through the front or back door? And if it was used, why did they move the ladder back over to the side of the garage. Like, why is that an important piece? And if this ladder was used and it was moved back over to the garage, was this done like immediately after climbing down or did the murder commence and dismemberment and disposing of the body and then come back to move the ladder? Like when was that ladder relocated? And before you answer this, there's some things I want to remind you of. There was no evidence of the window being forced open, nor were there any marks on the windowsill, nor was there any dirt from the outside found in her room. Suzanne was big for her age. She was 52 inches tall and 74 pounds at the age of six and would not have been easy to carry down that ladder. So with those facts in mind, what do you think is the story behind this ladder? I don't know. There's so many. (laughs) If this happens, then this could have happened. Or if A, B, and C, then definitely D. And there's so many different possibilities. But um, 
And there's so many problems with each scenario. There's no one that you're like, uh, obviously that's the right one. Like, what were they thinking? They're so stupid. That's not the case. I think it's pretty strange that it was at the correct height, but I think that that could be a coincidence. Okay, well, let's break this down. So what we do know is that her window was open when her father discovered that she was missing. The window was open. The cold air was coming in. Right? Mm. We do know that. Yes. However, this was January. Doesn't it snow? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and get cold and windy and yeah. So how were they not able to determine whether there were footprints or ladder marks or whether the snow was built up around it? Like, couldn't they look at the ground? Does it look disturbed? You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like there was no investigation tactic at all regarding the ladder. Like, not even a little bit. They just saw it sitting next to a building. We're like, oh, that's what was used because the window was open. They could be right. But how did they determine that? Was the ground moved? Like, you know what I mean? What did it look shuffled around or... I mean, I don't know if it was dirt or grass or whatever it was. And I would assume that, like I said, that there was snow. But let's say that there was no snow in January in Chicago. And let's say that the ground was just simple dirt or grass. If the ladder had been sitting there for a while, you would see dirt kind of like, you know, built up around the side of it. So was that there? Did it look like it had freshly been moved? Was there a mark indicating that it was in one area and then you know, maybe moved either closer or farther away from the building. You know what I mean? Like, did it look like it had been moved recently? Were there any indents in either the grass or the dirt that indicated that the feet of the ladder were placed on the ground, you know, and then put a bunch of weight on it? Like, did it look packed down at all? And let's say that the ladder was used. How the hell did they get her to go down that? She would have had to have been unconscious. She would have never just willingly been like, yeah, let me climb out this window in the middle of the night with a strange man. Like, that makes no fucking sense. But that would be really hard to carry that size of a girl down a ladder, probably cold and icy. Okay, okay. So let let me pitch this to you. Was the window another hoax by the perpetrator? Just to throw the family off. And the ladder just happened to be there. I mean, I'm not a big believer in coincidences, but... I I don't understand. Maybe they got in that way and then went out the front and then went around and moved the ladder back. That That, could be. That might be the best scenario that we have currently. But the way that it was described in this building was that there was somebody at the front office. However, I don't know if they were there all night long. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if they were there in the time frame that it happened. I think they said like 1230 to 2 a.m. or something like that. So if that's the case... Was somebody there? Were they not? If they weren't there, could you just walk straight out? And this is like an apartment building where other people are residing in the area. It's not like it's just a single family residence, you know. So was nobody else out and about? And if they were out and about, nobody saw somebody carrying a little girl away in her pajamas that has no business having a little girl carrying, being carried away in her pajamas and didn't say anything about it. Like, I just, there's so many questions to me about like all of this, but definitely the latter. Like, does it come into play at all? Or is it just, like I said, like just like the ransom note, we're just going to leave this to throw them off. I feel like that would have been very well thought out. (laughs) And I don't know. I don't know. But I want to also say um, they had stated that there, 
like their street would not have been quiet throughout the night necessarily. Like there would have been people out and about. So I don't think that they could have, even if they did go in the window and then decided to go out one of the doors of the building, I don't think that they could have gone out the front door unless they were like, Oh, my daughter is sleeping. Like Carrie, like, you know, knocked her unconscious and then put her up on your shoulder and like was carrying her kind of like a big baby, you know? And then like, Oh yeah, she fell asleep. She's so tired. Like kind of schmooze their way out of the, you know, uncomfortable situation or something. But that would have taken a lot of guts because somebody could have seen her and recognized her and been like, "Mm, no, that's the girl that lives upstairs. So I don't know. I think it's really, I don't know. We don't have enough information from their investigation, which is so strange. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so frustrating because even with the thought of somebody being like, oh, it's my child. I'm carrying them at 2 a.m. and they're asleep because we need to be somewhere at 2 a.m., which A, makes no sense. But B, even if that was the case and they said that to somebody and that made sense to them at the time, after, I mean, this was huge in the media, huge every day, front page on three or four different newspapers, if not more at the time. And I mean, major news articles, they would have seen this and been like, oh yeah, I saw a man carrying a girl that night outside of that exact same building. You know what I mean? So the street wasn't quiet, but there are no eyewitnesses. Well, that we know of. There could have came forward and the police could have been like, no, we got this. You know what I mean? Oh, we can't put that past them in this situation yeah you're correct that is true uh man that is crazy to think about i didn't even think about that but i don't know back to the ladder i feel like it may have been used for entry i don't think it could have possibly been used for an exit and because i agree she would have been too big to carry down seamlessly three stories like that's just not an easy task for anybody not to mention if it was Hirons, he was a young man like no way could he have have done that on his own you know he would have had to have assistance and i don't even know what that would have looked like i mean i literally can't even picture that but i think it was potentially used as an entry i don't think it was used as an exit And I think it's possible that it wasn't used at all. Those are my only suspicions. And as far as why, how, where, I mean, I just don't get it. I don't get how this whole thing played out. And I think it's the fact that there are missing parts to this that they may or may not know, but we for sure don't know them. So it's hard to piece this together because I can't imagine this in my mind going as they're explaining that it went. Because if if Hirons did write that note and he did leave it in the in the bedroom for them to find, why was there no attempt to collect on that? Never did they ever reach out, provide them instructions, nothing. All they said is don't involve the police or contact the FBI and get this money ready. That's all they said. But then they never provided any instruction on it. Yeah, I don't think that they actually wanted the money. I think that I don't was- think so either. So is it possible that's the same thing with the window? It was just a tactic, a distraction? I feel like if we're going to say that, I think that this has got to hit closer to home then. Because, yeah, because how did they get in then? Right. How did they get mm-hmm. in? But also, like, it's pretty strange that the ladder was set to the right height for her window. 
So maybe she had like a peeping Tom ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So they knew, you know, where her window was and stuff like that. And then after they took care and they dismembered her and killed her and all that stuff, then they went back and they're like, Oh, got to move this ladder. Like, I mean, it's just so strange. Like it's strange. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's so much more then we know it's hard to like say for sure. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely speculating. None of this is proven. This is definitely just our thoughts based on the information that we covered in this case. But I feel like if it was a peeping Tom, or like you said, if it wasn't close to home, they would have had to have come up with a way to enter the building. So in that case, I feel like they did have to use the ladder. But being that we have no knowledge or information and can barely even speculate on how it was that she left the building because she was alive at the time. So with that in mind, was it closer to home and nobody suspected it because that's their child, you know, so she wasn't fighting them. She was willingly going with them. You know what I mean? There was no question about that. And that's the reason there was no screaming so in that argument, it almost does sound like it's closer to home. But then we have the handwriting experts determining that Thomas's handwriting with his left hand matched that of the ransom note. So if he committed this crime and it was not anybody in the family and we should not be looking in that direction, then how did he get out? He may have gotten in with the ladder. Fine. And he had to have gone back and moved the ladder either before or after murdering her. But then I don't, I don't understand how he got out. And on the basis of was it moved immediately after exiting the building or was it moved later? I feel like it's risky to go back later. But at the same time, if you have a child with you and you're kidnapping them, you're not going to be like, hey, hold still for one second. Let me move this ladder to erase the evidence. And they're going to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> So she had to have either been asleep throughout this entire thing or they had to go back, which they weren't far. I mean, the murder uh, scene was, you know, not far. They were still in the same neighborhood. So it wouldn't have been like necessarily out of the way or whatever to go back. But that's risky because what if she had been discovered sooner than before you were done, you know, and it's already crawling with police and you go back to move the ladder. I don't know. I, I think that that's a really tricky one to answer unless you start getting a second person involved. You know what I mean? You climb the ladder and get the girl. I'll move the ladder back and I'll meet you out front with the car. Yeah. That's a lot. I don't know. But then at the parents, um, I did want to say or bring back up that the parents thought they heard her crying. Correct. And then they determined that she wasn't. Presumably, probably, they thought that she fell back asleep, but... Right. I mean, that could have been her waking up and struggling, and then because she was struggling, they knocked her out. And that's then where they took off, but I don't know. It's... Oh, man. So many questions. I don't know. So many. She was at least alive exiting that residence. Whether she was conscious or not, or awake or not, we don't know. But she was definitely alive. Yeah, I agree. My third discussion topic is about Suzanne herself. So I think based on our discussion that we've 
kind of determined that she would to have had to been murdered after being removed from her room, just based on the fact that it almost sounds like she was asleep when she was taken out of there. And that's why it was so quiet because if they had murdered her, there definitely would have been more noise that was not heard by anybody. So we kind of came to the conclusion. I think that we believe that she was murdered after being removed from her room. They also determined that her body was dismembered in that bathtub in the alleyway. So maybe that's where she was killed too. But I just don't, there was no evidence that she was killed in her bedroom. So I think I'm satisfied with that. But I still have questions on whether this murder was premeditated or not. Did the perpetrator specifically intend to enter the Degnan apartment or was it a decision made on the spot while looking for an apartment to enter? And was murder the intention or was it burglary? And the murder happened because Suzanne maybe like woke up or something while in the process of searching through the bedroom. I do think that it was premeditated. Yeah, I I like your idea of the peeping Tom or something in that vicinity. Yeah, I feel like it was very well planned out and um, they knew exactly what they were doing, when to do it. Because, you know, her, they knew her schedule. They knew the Dagnan schedule and they knew when was the prime opportunity to strike. And so I think that it was most definitely premeditated and... I don't think it was a burglary gone wrong because um, if you were a burglar and you looked in and you're like, oh, there's a kid sleeping. Let me see if she has some fancy jewelry that I can steal. You know, like that just doesn't really make sense. She's got toys and shit like she doesn't have money, you know, so like I don't think it was a burglary, but I do think that it was premeditated. Specifically, her, not just anybody, but her. Yeah. I definitely agree that murder was the motive. So they said that the window of opportunity for this crime to have taken place was very narrow. The Degnans had come home that evening and Mr. Degnan reported that at about midnight, he and his wife had walked Suzanne to the bathroom and back to her room because this was normal routine. He also reported that he went to bed at about 1230. Dr. William McNally, after analysis of the child's digestive tract, estimated that she was killed between 1230 and 1 a.m. This might not be exact. I can only imagine that it would have been hard to determine when her body's in multiple pieces. So that may not be exact, but based on the digestive tract, that's what he was able to determine. Then the only reports that they had about movement going on that night are as follows. Ethel Hargrove, the maid who lived in the neighbor's apartment on the second floor and whose bedroom was directly above Suzanne's reported hearing Suzanne mutter something like, quote, eh, eh, I am sleepy, end quote, as well as their dog barking at 1250 a.m. The neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Flynn, 
who occupied rooms on the third floor, reported that they heard the dogs bark between 1 and 2 a.m. and went down to the second floor to quiet them. One tenant in the building where the dismemberment took place reported noise in the basement between 3 and 4 a.m. Another heard water running at 2.45. So with that timeline, it's very, very narrow. If Mr. Degnan went to bed at 12.30 and she was kidnapped and murdered sometime between 12.30 and 1, that's a very short time frame to get in, get her, get out, and murder. I mean, that's a very short time frame. That was absolutely the motive. Yeah, they were on a mission, it sounds Right, like. and they didn't that's have to necessarily conduct the dismemberment quick. right at that time. But based on her digestive tract, she could have been murdered and then potentially relocated and then dismembered when the noise in the basement was heard between that 2.45 time of the water running and 4 a.m. of hearing noise in the basement. The dogs barking between that 12.50 a.m. and 2 a.m. time frame it's alarming, but also I've had dogs that just bark for no fucking reason. I had a dog that chased geckos. So, and he would bark at them and chase them. And then that was it. I mean, it's hard to say that that's due to unlawful entry into an apartment building a floor below those dogs. Not to mention the little girl did not make really any noise. So how would the dogs have known to bark unless they maybe saw them climbing up the ladder through the window? They could have seen these people like approach the building. But I wish we had a more solid time of when they had gone down to quiet the dogs because between 1 and 2 a.m. is kind of broad. But they said that it started barking at 12.50, which is between that 12.30 and 1 a.m. time, but it doesn't give them very much time to commit the murder after getting her out. If she was killed between 1230 and 1. And the entry was made at 1250. You know what I mean? So it's a very, 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 very small time frame. Which should make this an easier to solve case. But it's not. Yeah, this whole thing is... Yeah. I mean, it. it's a small time frame. There's not a lot that can happen in that time frame. But somehow, a lot happened. And there's a lot of different options of what did actually happen. I also want to throw out there that there was a report of two people who saw a gray colored car with a man and a woman in it driving several times down Kenmore near the home at about 2.30 in the morning. So this could have been an unrelated coincidence. Or it could not have been, but I do just want to throw it out that that was something that did end up getting reported. They weren't ever able to identify the couple driving the vehicle. It's an interesting thought, though, that potentially two people conducted this crime because some of the evidence suggests that almost. I just am really having a hard time picturing this happening with only one person. And I don't know why you would get a second person involved. Like, that's really risky because they could come forward and say something someday, you know. 
But just how we did our two-parter last week and the week before that regarding our horrendous duo of Henley and Brady where they did commit their crimes together. You know what I mean? So, and there was one eyewitness that said that they had seen a couple exiting that residence. You know, one was driving, one was ent- one was exiting. So it's possible, but I don't know. I don't, it's so hard to say what actually happened, but I don't know how somebody could have done this on their own and gotten away with it without leaving any prints using and removing the ladder because how else are they entering if it's not somebody close to home there was no screams involved i mean i just don't i don't know it doesn't all piece together you know what i mean if it was a stranger in my room when i was six years old i would have freaked out which could be what the parents heard but i think that if this was just a one person thing i which i'm not sure but it sounds like if it was that this was a very well planned out and executed thing. So there was some sort of stalking that happened beforehand. There was some sort of scoping the building. There was some sort of like a full on plan mm-hmm. for this one six year old girl, you know? Right. And it's, there was, you know, the maybe we're saying, oh, you, the note's sloppy, but maybe that was a very smart strategy, you know, and the right. ladder. He, maybe he climbed up, knocked her out, carried her down, knew the side entrance, back entrance, whatever it might be, took her out, put her in the car, and then went and put the ladder back down because he knew exactly what he was going to do. So it was right. either very, very messy or extremely thought out. And I feel like it had to have been thought out if we think that potentially it wasn't high rents, then that means they got away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Right. Very. Because like, did it happen again? Did they switch it up and do something different? Like it's really, it's hard to tell. Right. And that's like, I guess another piece of it too. There's no cases that I could find that happened around this time or immediately after that were even remotely similar. There were no similar cases or MOs or nothing. So it makes you think, okay, well, maybe it was high rents then. Because if he's in custody, then he's not killing little girls. But then I go back to the fact that this isn't his MO. He would got nothing from that. He didn't burglarize. There was nothing missing. So how did, you know what I mean? I just don't, I don't understand If he committed the burglaries and murder of Josephine and Francis and the police were skeptical that the reason that those women died was because they caught the burglar off guard, then I would be highly skeptical of that too. And the reason being that when he was captured by police, he at that time was caught and he had a weapon and he did not fire it at the neighbors that caught him, nor did he fire it at the people chasing him until the police got involved. Then he pulled it out as a scare tactic. And according to him, he never meant to fire the gun. He didn't even think it worked. Then it went off, whether he meant to shoot it or not towards the police is not the same thing as murdering somebody that caught you in the act. He could have immediately turned around, grabbed that neighbor lady that found him and had screamed 
killed her and moved on about his day if that's what he was doing in the other murders. Right. Why did he not do it that time? And why go in and kidnap this little girl, kill her and dismember her? Like, to me, that's such an escalation to get to murder, let alone dismemberment and kidnapping on top of that. I just can't even see how these are even related, let alone Hirons being responsible for them at all. Just based on if I were to tell you, hey, did you hear about that this woman was murdered? And they think that it was because there was a burglary in process and she and she caught him off guard. Oh, and then it happened again a little while later. It happened again. Almost the same thing. Crazy, huh? And then you're like, oh, and then did you hear like a month later, this little girl got kidnapped and she was murdered that same day and her body was dismembered and distributed throughout the sewer drains. Would you even consider that to be the same person? No. Like, those are not the same crimes. No, not even close. And like I said, he didn't get anything out of that. That's what gets me. And the other thing that, like, I want to point out or, like, reiterate is that when he did get arrested by the police, he did sit there and admit to, like, eight other burglaries. Like, why would you do that if you, like, ended up murdering people on top of that. You know what I mean? Like you want to, yeah, you would be trying to deny that all day long. Right. But he's like, yeah, like I did that, whatever. Cause it's no big deal. It's not murder. And that was not under terrible scrutiny or improper interrogation tactics. Right. Exactly. He was arrested, put into jail and he admitted to these other crimes. Right. So it's just, it's weird. It's a strange thing. Another inconsistency. Yeah. Another inconsistency. If two different people wrote the ransom note and the writing on the wall in lipstick, maybe that suggests that a male wrote the ransom note and a female wrote the curly Q letters in lipstick, right? That's kind of a female thing to do as well, right? So maybe there is a couple that did both of these things and they had escalated to the kidnap and murder of Suzanne and that's how they were able to get away with it. Because I'm not convinced that these are related at all. It has to be a couple working together, whether that's a male and a female or two males or something like that, working in cahoots, or that these are just completely unrelated altogether. Like either all three of them are completely different murders, or maybe Josephine and Francis are the same, and Suzanne is a different perpetrator. But I just don't think that the same people conducted all of these crimes considering the modus operandi was completely different along with what they got out of it. You know what I mean? Since nothing was taken from the Degnan residence and there were no subsequent crimes to compare it to. At least in the Chicago area. Yeah, that's I mean, Suzanne was the only one dismembered. She was the only one kidnapped. That there was only one ransom note. And the the content of the message that was written with lipstick on the wall is saying, like, catch me before I kill again, yet there was no other murders. And Hirons was free for many months. After that message was written. So 
that doesn't necessarily indicate that right, it was him either. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I like your thought about the the female wrote the lipstick message. That's like, because men don't usually carry lipstick. I mean, unless it's the lipstick of victims or whatever. But I think men would go more towards like, oh, let me write this in blood since blood was literally everywhere instead of in like oh let me go find some lipstick to write on the wall like that just doesn't seem like a male train of thought right and to go against my thought of it being a pair that are conducting all of these crimes the content of that message also does say catch me before i kill more i cannot control myself that is not indicating that it's an any more than one person. And there was no indication on the written ransom note either that there was more than one person as well. So, I mean, it's possible that maybe Suzanne was kidnapped, murdered, and dismembered by two people and one person committed the other crimes or two separate people committed the other murders of Josephine and Francis I mean, this could be turned and twisted in so many ways. I don't even know if it was considered by the police. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good point, though. I mean, do you think it's possible that these could be bifurcated? Or are you convinced that they're all by one person or one couple? No, I don't think that they're all committed by one person or one couple. I think that they're different incidences. And then they just happen to be around the same time and get lumped together. Yeah, I agree. And... Another reason I'm going to say that I think that they were bifurcated and they they were conducted by at least two separate perpetrators being one responsible for Josephine and Francis and another either person or couple responsible for Suzanne Degnan because the police had a lot of pressure on them to start solving these crimes. These things are happening in this community and nobody's solving these crimes. They don't have any answers. The residents are scared. The media put pressure on them. And so they determined they were going to find somebody that they were going to be able to pin this on. And they were going to pin all of them on that person because case closed. Aren't our police so great? Our streets are safe again because we have all these answers. At least that's what they're portraying to the media. Now that we're looking at it, we're like, did they have any answers? No. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't seem like it. So, I mean, to me, it's like very, it's very likely that these were bifurcated and are either one, two, or three, or are either two or three different incidences, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Okay, so we're going to wrap this up in a nice little bow. Is Hirons guilty of any of the burglaries and or murders? And if it wasn't Hirons, who was it? Um, Besides the burglaries that he confessed to and the little, the petty ones without the murder. (laughs) um, I don't think he was responsible for any of those. I don't think he had anything to do with it. I don't think, I think that he got a very, very poor deal out of this whole thing. And I think that the only thing he ever did was stole when he had to or when he was bored or whatever, but I don't think he escalated to murder. Um, As for who I think it was, I'm not sure. I don't feel like we have enough evidence. Um, And I feel like there was too many questions left unanswered 
or even thought about. I don't think there was any, there was a lot of questions that weren't even discussed or options that weren't discussed or investigated or anything. So I'm not even sure that I, I like feel confident that it was somebody else that they even had listed. I think it could very well be somebody that they never even like interviewed or something. So I, I don't know, but I definitely don't think it was Hiren's. Okay. I agree with you. This whole time I've been kind of wavering because something that does get me is that the Degnans ended up having another son and he had looked into the case and based on the evidence and the information that he received, interviewing the judge and all that stuff, he determined that there was enough evidence to convict in his opinion. So, and then based on the fact that the parole board had reviewed it many times and judges had reviewed it many times and... So many people with the power to sentence and determine a conviction for somebody decided that there was enough to convict him. So I want to say, okay, there's probably something out there that maybe we just don't know. Because I, to me, it looks like it's so random. Like they just picked somebody is what it looks like. From the information that I have, you know what I mean? And from what we've reviewed, I'm not convinced that he's guilty of any of these. But they must have been somehow. And I mean, this is over the course of 60 plus years that he was in custody. So it's not the same person, the same judge, the same attorneys, the same parole board members. I mean, there were many appointed officials that looked at this case, even the governor who was voted in and determined He's guilty. So did every single one of those not do their research or how did he remain in custody that long? I'm going to play devil's advocate with you on this one. Okay. And I'm going to say, let's say all these people did review it and they had good intentions. Right. And then they look at this and they're like, holy shit, this is police brutality it's illegal investigation. There's planted evidence. There's there's poor interrogation tactics being used. You know, there's so many things wrong with this case that if because he was in prison for so long, if they turned around and let him out, do you know how much he would sue the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois for? And the prison system and the police departments? There is an endless number of people and agencies that he could sue for false imprisonment. And like, there's just so much, it would cost them millions of dollars. Okay. So you think this is a financial. I believe it very well could be, because I'm not going to sit here and say that like every single person that's appointed is a good person and has a good heart. Cause we know that that's not true. People get greedy People look at it and they say, hey, if I let this go and then the city gets sued on my watch for how much money? Like, uh uh-uh, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be able to run for president after that. You know what I mean? Like, do I think that there's selfishness? Yes. Do I think that that's what happened in this situation? Yeah, probably, because there is a lot going on here that is wrong, incorrect, false, questionable at best. Like, there's so many things happening that especially the turn of the century um 
they would not, not have let this go. And especially with, you know, um, new reformed policies and procedures and things like that. I do not think it would look good for any person in Chicago that did any of that investigation or review or anything to have that conviction overturned because then one, they are no closer to finding the actual killer Two, they're like, yeah, we did shit interrogation that we did shitty investigation. You know, we false imprisoned this poor man and then he's going to turn around and any attorney would pick that up in a heartbeat and be like, uh, yeah, go ahead and pay my client your millions of dollars. Like, and then boom, bankrupt, you know, there's just so many things that I just, I do, I'm going to say, I do think that it would be um, extremely strange if that was not the motive behind keeping him in prison for so long, because the stats of the, of the case are not good. And so I don't, I mean, if there is evidence that's like groundbreaking and they're like, see, we told you this was him. Isn't that public information? Yeah. Where is it? Where exactly. is that evidence? So there isn't any is what I'm saying. Like, I don't think, I don't believe there is any. And so that's why I go back to, this is probably political and financially backed and, it sucks for him, honestly, and for the family because they didn't get closure. With the killer, mm-hmm. right? They they're convinced it's him, but I think that it's because they want to be convinced because mm-hmm. they want to have whoever's responsible behind bars and punishing, you know. Mm-hmm. But the police didn't do their job very well. Neither right. did the attorneys or the prosecution or the judges. You know what I mean? I feel like there's so many people that slipped up in this situation, and I get that. Like back in the day, back in the '40s, like. That was an easy thing to do. There was not as many policies and procedures as there are now. And, you know, their standards were probably different. Their tactics were different. And I get all of that to a point. But, like, the reason why I think it's, like, political and financially backed is because not even his attorneys were doing their job. So... My thing is, I'm like, okay, so did the DA go to his attorneys and like, oh, you're really gonna represent a child murderer? You're, you want to let this child murderer go free? If he goes free, then that's on you. And they kind of bullied him into it is what I think. You know, they are, they, especially people in those positions have the ability and the means to play dirty and I think sometimes they do and especially back in the 40s I would not put it past them or they paid them off like they did others exactly financially though yeah Mm -hmm. like it's either politically or financially like selfishly Mm -hmm. justified and I understand that this was a long time ago but they determined that they were going to deny his parole but that they would review it every single year He died in 2012. Our standards for investigation, I feel like, has come a long way even in the last decade. And there's always going to be corruption somewhere. But 2012, you're going to tell me somebody looked at this with the technology that we have now and was like, yeah, guilty. We're not letting him out. He's a danger to society. Since fucking when? Well, and that's the thing, though. I don't think that they did think that. I think that they looked at that and they're like, oh, we false imprisoned him for how long? Yeah, I'm not going to be the one letting him out. He's going to bankrupt the state. Like, there's, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, there's, Mm -hmm. I just, 
I don't think that people that looked at it and reviewed it necessarily had his best intentions right in hand. So, right. And it's sad. Like he was never married, never had any kids. I mean, his power of attorney was literally one of the women who wrote a book about him. He had nothing. He had nobody. So there were supporters that thought that he was innocent, but who was going to go to bat for him? Like you said, not even his attorneys did that. So they made websites and said, you know, like, you can email the governor and and help us get him out of prison. But then you were like, well, but after all these years of being determined that he was guilty, maybe I'm missing something. So I don't want my name on that because if he gets out and murders somebody else, maybe that is on me. You know, like then you start putting doubt in the public's mind and you're like, man, like what's true? What's not true? We don't know. But the reason a lot of this came to light is because, I mean, there were advocates for him. You know what I mean? And we can talk about it now knowing that there's nothing we can do about it because he's dead. But I don't think it's something to ignore. Right. It's just, it's sad. I feel like this is a sad situation, a sad case. I feel like he got robbed of a lot of years and he got robbed of you know maybe he did want to have a family and kids you know he was super smart he was going for what was it some some type of engineering like he was a smart kid and he was young and he was a good-looking man like there's so like his whole life got ripped from him for what like to close a case You know what I mean? Like, and unfortunately that happens, but it's just, it's sad, especially because, you know, oh, now he's a statistic. He is the longest serving inmate in Illinois. And that's not a statistic you want to have. Yeah, that's not something to be proud of. No, and it's just, it's sad. It's very unfortunate and it's sad. I agree. I think we're in agreement that... Hirons, we believe, is, I mean, he was kind of a nuisance with committing simple burglaries and carrying weapons around that he shouldn't have been carrying. But did it escalate to the level of murder, kidnap, and dismemberment? I don't think so. Okay, so we have done a lot of discussion on this case and going through all of the details and also these discussion questions. But... We are truly, truly interested in what our listeners have to say on this case. There are just so many discrepancies and so many unanswered facts about this case that we definitely want to know if there's something that maybe you're considering that we haven't talked about or if you're agreeing with us or if you disagree because of whatever reason, we want to hear about it. So head over to Facebook and search for Crime Addicts Pod like, follow, share, all the good stuff. Scroll down past our Amazon link. Then you will see discussion questions. Then you will see discussion questions for this episode. And there are quite a few of them this week. I'm not going to lie. If you don't want to answer all of them, maybe pick and choose your favorite ones that you want to talk about and let us know what you think. I'll review them for you now, but you can definitely head over to the Facebook page to engage with us there. So the first discussion topic was regarding the ransom note. Was it for real or was it a cruel hoax? When was it written? Before the entry, while the perpetrator was still in the house or after the kidnapping? And why was it oily and crudely lettered and on a small piece of paper? Two, the stolen ladder. Was it used to enter Suzanne's bedroom? 
if the ladder was used, did the murderer carry her down the ladder afterwards or did they exit the building through the front or back door? If the murderer used the ladder, why did they not just leave the ladder under the window? And if used and then relocated, when did this happen? Number three, regarding Suzanne. Was her murder premeditated? Did her perpetrator specifically intend to enter the Degnan apartment? Or was it a decision made on the spot while looking for an apartment to enter? And was murder the intention or was it burglary and then murder was the result? Number four, is it possible that more than one person was involved in the Degnan case or any of the crimes for that matter? Number five, is it possible these could be bifurcated, meaning was the person who killed Suzanne the same person who earlier murdered Josephine Ross and or Francis Brown? And number six, is Hirons guilty of any of the burglaries, kidnapping, and or murders? If it wasn't Hirons, who was it? Was it Thomas or somebody else? Like I said on our social media, we will be posting pictures of not only Hirons, but also the ransom note and lipstick message that we previously discussed. So head over to our social media, either Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or our website, whatever you get down with to check those out. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on this questionable case that is solved according to the legal system, but not according to us. Come back next week, Addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated. <laughs>